Wow, it's so fun to be with you. Is it okay if I switch out the Bible? Not to be pretentious, but uh, I'll use my big leather Bible instead, if that's okay. I'm just kidding. Well, not really. I'm going to switch it out because it's easier for me, and this is a a Bible I've studied. Um, I just want to say thank you, Brandon and the team and you guys for letting me be here this morning. I'm a stranger from Portland, of all places, and that feels risky on a lot of levels. Uh, So I just want to say thank you. I also want you to know that that is not where I'm from, so if you're worried about my origin story, I am a Southerner by birth, so uh, I've at least been raised right, you know, so that's good. Good for us. Yeah, I just wanted to put everybody at ease here. Um, In all honesty, it's such a joy to be with you. It's so fun to be with your team. I don't ever get flown places, so this was fun. Uh, I've like blipped into Indianapolis once uh, in my youth, and now I'm here as a still a youth, but an older youth. And uh, at least I want to believe by faith that that's true. And it's been so fun to be with you and such an honor and joy to be with your team. I know you had a guest last week. I listened to him. It was amazing teaching. Um, And I know he said it to you, but I just want to say it to you as well. Your team loves you and, um, and has this deep burden to labor on behalf of this community. And it's extraordinary and uh, tons of humility seeping from your leadership and such a passion for Jesus. It's just a gift. So I've been ministered to as I've been here, and uh, I hope this morning to return the favor uh, as we get into the scriptures. So let's do that now. We're going to get into the scriptures, but I always like to start with a little story. Um, And so I'm going to do so from my life this morning. I think it's important that you know me, and, and then I'll know you just by proximity. You can tell me all your life stories after this gathering if you'd like to. But um, I'm going to start with the college version of me uh, to a story that's been really significant in my life. So um, let's do that. Um, I'll start here. It was day seven of waking up in the middle of the night. Anybody been there? Yeah, so tough. But after the third night, I figured I must be in some spiritual battle because I was that righteous as a Bible student. Uh, but by the seventh night, I knew that what I was fighting was myself. Um, I was finishing up Bible college in a small town in, just near Alabama, and I was busy helping get a church plant off the ground. I was working two jobs just because I really wanted to finish well. Life was full of really good things, but the truth was I was very tired. I had been giving and giving for many years at a ministry level, but also at a heart level, and it was all I could do to keep my eyes fixed on the season that was coming. I could practically taste evenings without having to read a theology book, which, if that's not your world, I mean, it's good news. Trust me. I mean, it's like, we love the Bible, but enough's enough. You know, I'm kidding. Don't quote me or get me in trouble. Um, The truth is, I was just excited to be normal again, not have the pressure of school and ministry and the life that I was leading. But this sleep interruption was throwing off my vision. What did God want? What else could he be after in me? And I really don't know why it took me so long to figure it out. Uh, But by the seventh night, I found my mind racing back to a letter I had just received a few days earlier. This letter was from my mom for my birthday, and it was the first time I had heard from her in seven years. And after reading it, I immediately resolved in my heart not to meet with her or to answer her request because there were just too many lost years, too much pain, too much disappointment, too much confusion. And 
the truth is, I didn't feel like she deserved it. And I, in the midst of all of that, was riddled with a weird, confusing cocktail of both desire and fear. And so for me, the answer had to be no. So as I laid there in the darkness of that dorm room, all the emotions raced back to me of opening that letter, reading those words, and somehow in the midst of the chaos of my soul, I heard a faint whisper of a familiar voice. It was an invitation to be exact. Give me what you have. What I have, and I thought about that. I thought, Lord, I have nothing. I have years of a broken heart and confusion as to why she didn't want me. And still again, I heard him say, give me what you have and let me bless it. Trust me with this. And immediately I knew what that meant. I knew it meant risk. I knew it meant confronting my greatest fears. And I knew it meant coming up against all of my limits, both of that season and of my soul. It meant coming to the end of myself again and surrendering at a deeper level and giving more. And all I thought was, I can't do it. I just can't do it. And what would it matter anyway? This miracle of fixing this relationship was impossible. It felt ridiculous. It was definitely illogical from a psychological perspective. And in all honesty, I wasn't sure I had it in me to actually do it. I mean, I was noble in my own self-righteousness, but not that noble. Giving God what I had would mean giving the broken pieces of a story that was riddled with shame. My shame and hers. And so I laid there giving God my best arguments, like any good pastoral student would do. And I told God how silly this conversation was. And I did this until the sun broke through my window. And then finally, when I had run out of words, I heard him say again, give me what you have and trust me. Hot tears ran down my face, and in that small dorm room with the somewhat violent and not-so-subtle breath patterns of my roommate filling the air without any idea about what that would mean or cost me or what would become of it, I said, okay. Now, as most of you know, you are, as a community, like Brandon said earlier, in a series centered around the Gospel of Matthew. And in that, you've been learning and leaning into this greater picture of life through the lens of Jesus' life and his ministry. And hopefully, you've been getting a greater glimpse into what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And last week as a community, you landed in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' teaching on being salt and light, and more specifically, how God is calling us as his disciples in this particular cultural moment to live provocatively, to live in a way that's different than the world. The heart of that message being that we were made to impact the world, to influence the world, not the other way around. And the reality is that truth points us to this kingdom that is coming. And though it's not here in full, it one day will be. This is the great story that we, as disciples of Jesus, are caught up in. And it's the story that we want to invite other people into. So today... I want to build on that reality, and I want to unpack some of the layers of how we actually become people who are like Jesus, which you're on a journey to figure out. But also, I want us to lean into becoming people who are experiencing the reality of life with God in all the ways that we were meant to. So, because Brandon has so much power, and he told me I could, we're going to hit pause on Matthew chapter 5 for those of you who are Enneagram 1s in the room and panicking right at this moment. 
Uh, We're going to hit pause on Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to propel forward to Matthew chapter 14, like Brandon mentioned a second ago. And we're going to land in this story that probably was familiar to you. It's a famous story, really centering around a miracle that Jesus does. But today, I want our attention to be on another equally a significant part of that story. So if you're not there yet, turn to Matthew chapter 14 if you are. I'm going to go what I call a little old school because I live in Portland and people don't understand it. I grew up deeply Southern Baptist, so I, I like the Bible and we like to just go line by line. I call it chunk by chunk now in my older years, so we're just going to take chunks of the scripture and walk through it together. Is that okay? Oh yeah, some of you are like into it. Some of you are like, yikes, promise it'll get good. If you're bored at the first part, we'll hit it hard on the back end and make it very fun, Okay. Great. All right, let's look at verse 13. I'm reading out of the NIV for for what it's worth. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Okay, so our story opens today with Jesus, if you didn't know, just learning of John the Baptist's death. And just as we've seen Jesus do before, his response to that, the grief and loss of his cousin, was to withdraw to a solitary or desert place. But this time alone would be short-lived, as we read. In the second part of verse 13, we read that the crowds, unaware of Jesus' pain or grief or stress, actually follow him from the towns to the deserted place. And that they don't just come to offer him comfort or blessing, but they come with needs. And as soon as Jesus lands on shore, he sees them, and his reaction, in my opinion, is nothing short of remarkable. He isn't angry or frustrated or avoidant. Instead, we read that he is full of compassion. N.T. Wright describes the moment this way. Before the outward and visible works of power in healing the sick comes the inward and invisible work of power in which Jesus transforms his own feelings into love for those in need. Jesus' own vulnerability seems to be the gateway for his compassion. And it's from that place of compassion that we find him doing what he has done time and time again. He heals the sick. In the middle of his own time of need, he continues to care for those who need him the most. Now, eventually the day wears on, and we find Jesus' disciples doing what any of us would do when we're trying to wrap up a long day's work We're just trying to get things moving so we can go home, and that's just what they did. Look at verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him, and they said, this is a remote place, and it's getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, to me, there seems to be a hint of impatience. Maybe I'm reading myself into the story. Uh, Maybe there's even some fatigue in the disciples' tone. But essentially, as we read this, we can see that they are telling Jesus what to do. Now, I would call this hangry behavior. Some of you are familiar with it. It's definitely a reality in my own life I'm working through, but I don't know. That's not a scholarly perspective, just my opinion. Whatever it is, it's important to note that their disposition here is significant. As they spoke to him, they were in so many ways saying, look, we've been at this for a while now. There are too many people here, and they won't go home to eat unless you tell them to. Now, historically, we know that it isn't likely that so large a number of people would have been able to buy enough food in the villages nearby, especially in this deserted or wilderness place. The people would have had to bring their own food in order for them to actually be sustained, especially with that number. So the disciples weren't all wrong. They were kind of speaking some real truth to Jesus. 
and they were taking their circumstances at face value. What else could they do? Well, apparently something. (laughs) Jesus here, without losing his sense of reality, responds and says, no, they don't need to leave. You give them some food. Now, the disciples undoubtedly and understandably were baffled, I would assume, and respond and say, verse 17, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. They show Jesus what they've got, and they say, this is it. This is all we have. And you can almost hear their protest. There's no questions from them of how or even why. It doesn't even seem that they're interested in much of a conversation. Maybe they're just perplexed, or maybe they're frustrated. Either way, it's clear that what they had was not enough. And in this moment, we see Jesus placing a demand on them that they are clearly incapable of fulfilling. And despite all that they had seen him do, they, like most of us would, stay locked in on their own perspective and their own limitations. I've wondered if it was just the simplicity of the ask that blinded their ability to believe that something more could happen. I mean, we were just talking about dinner, which to some of us is quite significant. (laughs) Well, I can't say for sure, despite their unbelief and exasperation, Jesus in his kindness says to them, verse 18, bring them here to me. He directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. Now, notice here that the disciples weren't called to creatively dream up or conjure up some strategic plan for charitable action. They were simply asked to give what they had, to surrender this tiny, meager provision, and then to let him do the rest. And while it may seem they do this with little faith, the truth is they still do it, even at a cost to themselves. Scholar R.T. France beautifully describes what their giving really entails when he says to surrender even this meager provision to Jesus was either an act of reckless obedience or evidence of a more confident faith in Jesus' problem-solving ability than we have seen the disciples displaying elsewhere. Still uncertain and perhaps even clueless of the outcome, the disciples hand over their food and with it, a possible forfeit of what they have to benefit someone else. And then, dinner is served. We read that Jesus directs the people to sit down and essentially prepares them to eat. He welcomes them to the table. In the Greek, direct is understood as a command and sit is actually to lounge or to lay on your side a position we don't take very often, and honestly, it'd be weird. So don't do that. However, this was a position that the first century Jews would have taken at a meal or a banquet or a feast. And the picture we see here is one that is both prophetic and familiar. With both authority and hospitality on display, Jesus sets the stage for both dinner and a miracle. And it's amazing how most of his miracles involve those two things. The limits of his people and the welcome of the other. Jesus then gives thanks, and he breaks the loaves. In other words, he blesses it, and he breaks the food. Language we'll hear again in this book, but around a different meal and a different table. And then we read that after he does this, he gave the food to the disciples, and the disciples served the people. Now, this act may seem simple and practical, but it's important that we see that Jesus is not only inviting the disciples to participate in the meal, but also to share in the miracle itself. And through that, something incredible happens. Verse 20, 
They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. Boom. A miracle. Happens right in front of their eyes with no lightning bolts, no thunder, no singing angels. Everybody eats. And in my world where I come from, that is a miracle. Amen? We love to eat. In fact, we read that more than 5,000 people eat and were satisfied. This meal wasn't just a sufficient meal or enough to curb the appetite. It was, as we read it, a filling to the brim experience. Jesus' provision went beyond any normal comprehension or even faith-filled expectation. We read that the disciples picked up the leftovers of broken pieces of food, language that points us back to the initial small, meager meal and the depth and the breadth of the miracle he performed in it painting for us a picture not only of the provision, but of the grandiosity of the miracle itself. Now, often, and I'm not unaware of this, when we read this story, this is where we end. With the people fed and another miracle of Jesus' in the book. But there is, I believe, something more for us to see, and maybe even better said, another invitation for us, and in particular for those of us who follow Jesus and are trying to follow Jesus. If we look closely, we'll see that the disciples, some of the main characters in our story, are actually carrying forward a significant narrative that's often missed or minimized in the shadow of this miracle we keep reading about. You see, the disciples, while a messy and sometimes unrelatable lot, are meant to, in this story, invite us in to find ourselves in the faces and the attitudes of the one with Jesus. And it's not too hard. I mean, if you've been following Jesus for a little while, you don't have to reach too far to try to identify with what they're experiencing. I imagine and believe that there are some of you in here today who know exactly what I'm talking about, who knows what that feels like. You've been walking with Jesus, you're grateful for all he's done, but there is, whether conscious or subconscious, a fatigue in your heart and a waning in your faith for what could be in your own life or in the life of this community. And if that's you, even just a little bit, then this is your invitation. You see, in this story, we find the disciples with Jesus at the end of their selves, exhausted and tired, overextended, and honestly disinterested in people or their needs, struggling to see what comes out of their limits, out of the surrender they offer to him, and struggling to see the miraculous work of Jesus. The disciples had been serving the people, helping them get to Jesus. They had been doing good and faithful work all day long. And then another need arises. And they find in their lap, as we often do when it comes to the need of others, another invitation to care and extend and to die for the sake of others or the kingdom. And the truth is they were now operating in that over and above space. Whatever would be done now would be extra. It would be a greater extension of themselves that in all honesty probably didn't feel that important. And yet in the fatigue and in the complications and really even in the impossibilities of what was before them, we find Jesus calling them to more. More when they feel like they were at the end of themselves. More when they had their own needs. More when they didn't know what to do next. More, when he, without words, invited them to trust him for what they needed the most. 
more. It's annoying, isn't it? Following Jesus sometimes, it's like totally annoying. I mean, I mean I'll say it because I can. Maybe just hold that in your heart if you feel embarrassed. But it is annoying. And um, it's especially annoying sometimes when we don't understand what he, he is up to. And then he invites us to more. More, for most of us, uh, is hard because more in American means cost. And cost is something that we try to avoid. Uh, at least most of us do. Which means that when Jesus starts to engage us in this more space, and we find ourselves in this kind of moment in our discipleship, there's usually a tension at play at the very least. But what we can't miss is that more in the kingdom has a different meaning than more does in American. And that tension of the more is often an appeal to see and to know and to experience something in a different way. In our text, it would be easy to judge the disciples for their lack of faith and overall bad attitude. At least I do. Every time I come to the text, I'm like, these guys. (laughs) I really am, which is so arrogant, but I'm working through it. It'd be easy to see them in this text or this story if we're really looking at it through the lens of the disciples as a hindrance to the meal Jesus was trying to provide and extend to the people. But what I think stands out even more distinctly in the text when we actually lean in and we find ourselves in the story is that Jesus is actually responding to them, responding to the disciples. With every move that they make, Jesus makes another. And it's in his response to them that I think we see three invitations for us as disciples of Jesus, three invitations for you, Soma, as a church and a community, three invitations for us as the kingdom people, as the big C church. And the first invitation I think we see is an invitation to humanity. What I mean by humanity is the limits of our humanness. In our text, Jesus didn't seem put off by the disciples' desires. He didn't seem put off by their frustration with the people or the situation. He didn't seem to be discouraged by their inability to see what he saw, to believe him for a miracle that he could offer despite the hundreds of times they had seen him do miracles. Instead, in our text, we see Jesus embrace them and meet them right where they're at. He doesn't coddle them or patronize them, but neither does he shut them down or rebuke them for their humanity, for their humanness. This response from Jesus, at least at some level, invites us to accept our limits and our humanity and to let that actually be the starting place for God's invitation to us. So much of us resist that. And yet in that place, we find invitations from Jesus himself. Now, I want to be clear for the sake of the community, um, we don't use our limits as an excuse for bad behavior or lack of faith. We just can't do that. But what I do want us to get is that there is a healthy reality for each of us to consider, especially on this pathway of discipleship, particularly as we play our part in the kingdom and inviting others into it. And that is that there are limits to our person and ultimately our perspective. There are limits to how we see and will even interpret what Jesus is up to in our lives and in the lives of others. And the gift is that through this invitation to our humanity to know our limits as humans, we are reminded of our place. He is God in heaven and we are here on earth. And there is something in that reality that many of us need to be reminded of. Something that can change in us if we're willing to accept that. The end of their humanness 
is where Jesus' godness could begin. And the same is true for us. And I hope many of you find relief in that and hope in that, because I sure do. (laughs) The disciples couldn't have imagined the miracle that was coming their way. They couldn't have seen it in the first part of the story. But in offering all that they had, their whole disposition, the honesty of the moment, bad attitudes and limits and all, they were able to not only experience the kingdom, but to participate in it. Now next we see that there's an invitation to humility. No surprise there. If you've been journeying with Jesus, that is the way it goes, huh? Yes. It's a tough road and a good one at that. Born out of this invitation uh, in our humanity is always this invitation to humility. Um, I like to define humility in the kingdom as a right view of ourself and a right view of God. Simply put, humility happens when we accept and embrace our humanity and our limits and allow it to change the way that we view the world and God. As we see this most clearly in the disciples, we see it as they begin to engage in the actual feeding I mean, for a second, can you just imagine with me the thoughts and feelings that were filling the disciples as they began to pass out food? I mean, have you really ever thought about that? So weird. Like, if it was you, me and Brandon passing out food, I'd be like, no way, man. (laughs) All right, I'll hit these two, and you hit that one, and we'll just ride out of here. I mean, have you thought of the story? You had to think, like, Peter's like, John, what? As they're, like, passing out stuff. And I'm not trying to be dramatic. I'm just trying to help you get into it. These are real people having a real experience with a miracle. We'd all be freaked out and confused about what was happening. This is a significant moment. You see, something was happening in them as they yielded to God's invitation, as they yielded to his perspective, something they wouldn't have known if they hadn't just entered in, something they couldn't have conceived in their own humanness. And that something was miraculous and it was tangible to them. The disciples thought they knew what reality was in that moment. They thought they knew what could happen and should happen. They thought they knew what God was up to and what he was capable capable of, but they didn't. And in that moment, as they entered in, that humbling moment, their sight began to shift. And I'm not just talking about what was in their baskets, but what was in their heart. Something was beginning to shift. Through humility, they were able to see what was actually true. Some of us, even now, are in situations where we're realizing we didn't know what we didn't know. But God did. And even though some of us still like to help God along, to give him our opinions, I love doing that, there is something that will shift in us when we actually surrender to his will. Without humility, without allowing ourselves to be changed by the reality of our own limits, We may forfeit participating in the miracle God is wanting to work in, around us, and through us. Humility, particularly as we see it here, is the prerequisite. It is the on-ramp for experiencing all that God has on offer. And it's usually much bigger than we can know. Now, finally, we see an invitation to harvest. Hate this word. So sorry, it's a church word, and I needed something that started with an H. Is that, can we be honest with each other? I feel like we're building that relationship. I might not have this with the 11. We'll just see. Uh, But this is the best word that could capture what I'm going after here. In our story, you'll notice that the miracle hasn't happened until we find it in the hands of the disciples. Until we recognize 
that Jesus took what they had given, what they actually gave to him, to the disciples, the miracle didn't take place. And in that one act, we see Jesus inviting disciples not only to participate, but to receive the gift of what happens when he's free to work as he wants to, even in the midst of unlikely situations. Historically, if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, many of us know that God delights in shattering our pint-sized expectations of who he is and what his followers can do. But sometimes it's harder to let that translate to our own situations that not only feel costly, but usually feel impossible. In our story today, we see that Jesus' invitations to more always involves more. And not just for the one receiving the miracle, but also for the one participating in it. Jesus is a God who is able to give beyond expectations and beyond what our humanity outlines. He is, if you've forgotten or need the reminder this morning, lavish. He is outrageous. And he is eager to give more than we possibly thought he could give. And he doesn't want to do it alone. He invites you and me into all of that. This is the story of the church. This is our story. Our story doesn't demand we become superhuman spiritual giants, thank God. But instead that we allow our humanity to be the starting place of the miraculous work of God, both in us and through us. The work of the church of his disciples is to keep hearing his invitations, to keep risking and trusting over and over again, to trust him with our humanity and to let that make us humble, able to see what could be, and then to say yes to this work of the harvest. Because there's more for us. There is more for you. Even if this morning it doesn't feel true and your circumstances don't say that it's true, there is more for you as an individual and there's much more for this community. I'll never forget meeting up with my mom a few weeks later after receiving that letter. I showed up with very little. I offered to Jesus what I had, what he asked of me, which was a measly mix of pain and distrust and a broken heart and a ton of impossibility. Bible student and all, zero faith. And while it didn't seem like much at the time, in fact, it seemed like what I was bringing actually was going to work against me. I can now see that from it came one of the greatest miracles of my life. What I thought my humanity hindered was actually the gateway to the gift I was meant to receive. That day marked the beginning of healing I never thought was possible, an experience of God's kingdom that I had not known. And from that experience, I actually realized, I experienced that Jesus raises the dead and that that's true. And I realized that what he asks of us is enough to change not only our lives, but the lives of those around us. And look, I do want to say that this story is one of many that has happened since, in big ways and in small ways. I've seen a lot of miracles, um, not in like a scary, charismatic way, although I've seen some of those, but in more of like a normal God healing and restoring and bringing his kingdom kind of way. And yet, 
Today, I still stand before you knee-deep in a measly offering I'm bringing before Jesus as I did this morning at 5.30, waiting on another miracle. This is the way. This is the way for disciples of Jesus. This is the invitation extended to us over and over again to bring what we have and to ask Jesus to do what only he can do. Now, if this story seems familiar to you in more than just a flannel board, cartoon, vegetable kind of way, it should. And it should be encouraging to you. Because this miracle we read this morning mimics many others that we find in the scriptures. Stories like that of Elisha, a famous prophet in Israel who was given 20 loaves of bread and fed 100 men and had some left over. Or a more obvious example, Moses, under whose leadership hundreds of thousands of Israelites miraculously received provision of manna or bread from heaven, all taking place in the desert or the wilderness. My point here is this story is not new. This is the story for those of us who follow Jesus. It's stories like these and the one we read today that are meant to call us into a life of faithfulness, of trust in God. This is the invitation to disciples of Jesus, to what God is calling us to. And I believe, I know, that there is a miraculous work when we say yes. Now, I just want to offer this to you this morning. I'm ending right now. Um, As I was praying for you as a community, I felt like the Lord wanted to encourage many of you, which is why I chose this text and this teaching. I just had a sense over and over again that God is wanting to do and is doing something new in your community, that you're at a threshold, even if it doesn't feel like it, and um, I may or may not be right about that, but my sense was that in the midst of that, the blinding part of that could be that many of you feel tired or up against your limits, and so it's hard to see what God might want to do, and so I just wanted to bless you with this today and say, Please don't prejudge your offering. Don't assign to your offering and your limits what could happen, but allow God and his kindness and mystery to bring a miraculous work out of it. For many of us disciples, especially us professional ones, it's hard to remember uh, sometimes the importance of bringing our whole honest selves to Jesus and letting him make something of that. But that's our invitation to come as we are and to participate with Jesus and what he's up to. So um, I'm going to pray now, and then um, you're going to, we're going to, not you, I'm coming too. We're going to move into a time of response around the bread and the cup. So Jesus, we come now before you grateful. It's so shocking to me still (laughs) that you would be so kind to do miracles in us and through us and to us, that you would invite us as disciples to experience more of you, to get to participate and experience the miracle First, your friendship, but then also the work you want to do in us and through us. With humility, we yield ourselves to you now. Within me, Jesus, I say, help me to want this. And we just pray that you'd come now, even as we respond to the bread and the cup, as we remember you, Jesus, that you would begin to transform us in our thinking and in our coming. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.